If you've got Bibles and you can find your way around them, fine. But it's not absolutely crucial that you follow every little bit that we talk about. But I want to start in Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15. And I'll give people just a moment to find that if you want it. And if we're in Deuteronomy, who supposedly is the author of Deuteronomy? Yeah, it's presented as though it is Moses who is doing the talking and is talking with God. And if you look at verse 15, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like who? Me. Me. So Moses is being presented to us as a prophet par excellence, as the paradigm of a prophet. I'll raise up for them a prophet like you from among their own people. I'm in verse 18. I will put my words in the mouth of the prophet. And what's the prophet got to do in verse 18? Speak. The prophet's got to speak whatever God tells the prophet. Anyone who doesn't heed the words that the prophet shall speak, in my name is in God's name, God will hold accountable. But look at what verse 20 says. What's it suggesting exists? False prophets. Prophets who speak in the name of other gods or purport to be speaking in the name of God, but it actually isn't God's word. So there are false prophets. And false prophets will die. But verse 21 is critical. and 21 and 22. If there are false prophets and true prophets, what's the problem? How do you tell them apart? You've got two lots of folks saying, this is what the Lord has said. And what does it say in verse 22 about how you tell them apart? If the prophecy doesn't come true, it was a false prophecy. So what's the problem about that? Hmm? You can't predict. It's only with hindsight that you know whether it was true or a false prophet. And that is really important for us to grasp. It's hindsight that enables us to distinguish between what is of God and what isn't of God. And there is no magic formula for determining whether the bloke with sandwich boards standing on the street corner saying the end is nigh is a prophet of God or is a little bit in the head. It's only with hindsight. Prophets do look a little bit to the future but they're not really interested in the future. Prophets are interested in their current situation. A prophet brings a word from God. Why? Sometimes it's a warning. Sometimes it's a warning. There are some prophets of hope as well as prophets of, uh, of, of warning. But yeah, it's it's for now, it's saying this will happen imminently unless you do something different. It's to evoke a response at the present time from the audience that is hearing this prophetic word. That's why the concept of prophecy is a really important one for the church to grasp today. It's to bring God's word into the contemporary situation to elicit a response. 
It's not looking a thousand years hence. It's looking to today and tomorrow. And it's saying that our God is active and is interested in what's going on and that there's an alternative way of doing things and this is what it is. So what's likely to be the response from the people to a prophet? Nobody likes change. It's go away, shut up. Go and take your message to some other people. We're okay as we are, thank you very much. The tradition of prophets is that they were not popular people. It wasn't a career path that you volunteered for because it was going to give you status and wealth and privilege. So that's a place to start. Now if you can find Kings, the book of Kings, 1 Kings chapter 22 and verse 19 in particular. And from verse 13 onwards we're told about a prophet called Micaiah who was summoned to speak to the king and he told the king things that the king didn't want to hear whereas some other prophets told the king things that he did want to hear. So we've got this issue of true and false prophets. Who are the true ones? Who are the false ones? The king of Israel said, didn't I tell you that he wouldn't prophesy anything favourable about me, but only disaster? You know, he's a troublemaker, so to speak. But verse 19, what does Micaiah say? Hear the word of the Lord, and what's Micaiah, what's he initially say? I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. So what's that picture? Who sits on a throne? A true king, a heavenly king. It's God as king, higher than the earthly kings. With the host of heaven either side. The Old Testament tradition is that You know, how does a prophet get the message from God? And that it's a prophet somehow or other has entry into what they understood as the divine council. So it's some kind of close relationship with God, an awareness of God, a You you can't talk of spirit language, Holy Spirit language in the Old Testament, but it's the equivalent thereof. It's how do you get that inner conviction that this is of God? And they spoke of it in terms of having entry into the divine council. And they envisaged God as a heavenly king. And what do kings have around them? Courtiers. So you've got that council, those courtiers around God in the heavenly realm. And a true prophet will have had that kind of an experience and will often talk about having had that vision as being the source of the message that they have to communicate to the people. They would they would probably verbalise it in that kind of language. That that's that's the kind of how do I authenticate myself? I use this language. We will see that they have visions of things. Some places in the Bible it implies that you hear a voice. But often that's when you're in a dream. Um you know, they are not trying to say that they have ever seen God or heard God in the way that you're seeing and hearing me, but they've not got the language to talk about it. 
And I mean, I can see that there are some here who are clergy. Well, there's one anyway. Um, but, you know, you've probably all had some kind of a sense of vocation or calling to something or other. How do we get that? How do you verbalise it? Where did it come from? And it's not easy to find the language to say, I'm really persuaded that God wants me to do X or Y. And this is the Old Testament language of how they do it. So Micaiah is something of a paradigm, and Moses is the prophet par excellence. Okay? Right, we're going to move to Jeremiah. First thing that I want to say to you is that the book of Jeremiah is a mess. <laughs> if you've ever tried reading Jeremiah, you seem to be going smoothly, and all of a sudden you think, well, I thought he was dead. And it jumps about all over the place, goes backwards and forwards. It repeats itself. There's duplicate passages that are virtually identical. The version that we have in our Bibles follows the Hebrew Bible. But the Greek Bible, the Septuagint, has a very different book of Jeremiah to our book of Jeremiah. Now, normally, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures is fractionally longer than the Hebrew. Some marginal notes or some explanatory ideas have got incorporated in as they've translated it. You know. But the Greek version, the Septuagint version of Jeremiah, is a lot shorter than the Hebrew text. So they translated a different version to the one that we have. The oracles against the nations, which is a traditional section of material that you get in long prophetic books or all prophetic books, appears in a different place. So the order of the chapters is different between the Greek and the Hebrew. And it's in the Hebrew version that Jeremiah is described categorically as a prophet who prophesied loads and loads and loads and loads of times and that's not the case in the Greek version. The character appears but he's not labelled in the same way as being a prophet and prophesying. The Qumran text, the Dead Sea Scrolls, show evidence of both versions of Jeremiah being around. So it's clear that we've got a body of literature that's grown, developed, been reshaped, utilised for different purposes. And that really is important again for us to understand what this prophetic material is. It's a collection of stuff that is bringing a message from God or messages from God that are understood as being from God to a community of people. But not just at one time. The messages are timeless. 
and they need to be recontextualised for each generation of people. And aspects of what a prophet was talking about will have greater or lesser importance in different contexts at different times. Dependent on what's going on in the world and among God's people at that particular time. So what you might be tempted to read as a historical trajectory going through a book is not one that you should take too seriously but understand it as a backdrop against which to understand these messages of God. It's one context in which they've got relevance. And if it's a big bus stop between two big empires, and where do God's people stand in the midst of that political shenanigans, you can then say, are we in that kind of a situation politically? Are any of those things going to speak to us as God's people today? Or is that not our world? I don't think there's many ages when there's not been political shenanigans and might not be big empires, but the conflict's going on. So, there used to be some who would say that the book of Jeremiah gave us the truest insight into the life of a particular prophet around the time of the Babylonian exile. Scholarship has shifted enormously now and there's a vast number of people and I would count myself among that who say it tells us nothing about a real historical Jeremiah. There may have been a historical Jeremiah but he's been utilised to enable an awful lot about prophecy to be communicated in this book. And remember, how do you know the difference between a true prophet and a false prophet? Hindsight. And what's going on here is that Jeremiah actually is the true prophet but all the false prophets are the ones who are being followed by the king, by the people. And it's when exile finally comes and Jerusalem falls that, whoops, perhaps we should have taken note. But you will discover... And we might as well go there now. I was going to do it much, much later, but I think we'll do it now. Find chapter 43. So Jeremiah has been speaking all the words of God. Yeah? And in verse 2, what does Azariah say? To Jeremiah. You're telling a lie. The Lord didn't send you to say, don't go to Egypt. You're inciting us to hand us over to the Chaldeans in order that they may kill us and take us into exile in Babylon. And they caught Jeremiah off down to Egypt. Whereas Jeremiah has been saying, God is bringing the Babylonians 
in judgment on you. You might as well go and settle down there. The sooner you get your punishment over, the better, the sooner there can be a new future. So even at the point when the city has fallen, there are still some saying, it's not true, (laughs) you're lying to us. So we're getting the picture of the prophet not being heeded all the way through. So let's go back to the beginning of Jeremiah. And we've given a little bit, supposedly, of biography. Jeremiah is the son of what? One of the priests from the land of Benjamin. So the Levitical priests. Who was Moses' brother? Which tribe? Levi, Aaron, the head of the priests. The words of Jeremiah, to whom the word of the Lord came, the word of the Lord came, yeah? We're given a date. 13th year of King Josiah. Yeah? It came in the days of Jehoiakim and Zedekiah until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Magically, that's 40 years. Does that ring any bells? 40 years? Wandering in the wilderness, Moses communicating with God on behalf of the people. And you get the 40 days up the mountain and all those kinds of things. This span of 40 years is too good to be true. Both in terms of the lifespan of people in those times, and if he's still in his prime to get carted down to Egypt, and he was acting as a prophet, it just makes bells ring that one needs to think about these things. Also, there's nothing going on in the book about most of the time of King Josiah, who was a good king. who centralised everything on the temple and all that kind of thing. Now, what does verse 4 and 5 tell us? God's choice of him from when? From before he was born and from when he's very tiny, you know... When did Moses start to be important? And we watched the story of Moses. The bulrushes and all that, you know, being protected from the very time. When God called Moses, what did Moses say? No, because I'm... I can't speak. I I, I can't speak. Aaron's better than me at speaking. Uh, What does it say in verse 6 that Jeremiah said? I don't know how to speak. Can you see how it's being presented in very mosaic terms? Verse 8, don't be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you. You know, Moses was frightened to go back to Pharaoh. Here it's don't be frightened of the nations. I'm with you to deliver you. What did Moses do? Delivered the people. And then you get here the Lord touching his mouth and appointing him. And look at what he's appointed to do, to be over 
nations and kingdoms to do what? It's negative first, isn't it? it it's to destroy even, and then it's to build and to plant. Now that motif of plucking up and pulling down, destroying and overthrowing and building and planting reappears through the book at different places as we progress. What's going on in verse 11, 12, 13? Visions. Visions of what kind of things? Ordinary things, plants and pots, not mystical visions, not otherworldly stuff, but actually seeing ordinary things and interpreting them as signs of the times. This is very much a prophetic function. To see ordinary events, ordinary things, and with the eye of faith, with an openness to God, to recognise that that might be significant. There's that openness to God, that God might be telling me something, and allowing that divine voice, intuition, inner conviction to help us work out what the relevance of something might be for the situation we find ourselves in. In some way, it's sort of expecting God to be active in the ordinary and the everyday, not just in your church services, not just when you're reading the scriptures, but that wherever you are, if you're sensitive to this being God's creation and that God is wanting to communicate with us, we might get that, that sense. How do we know that it's not just me and my particular desire and what I want to do? Well, it gets tested with other people and sometimes it's only with hindsight that I will know, as will others, whether it was of God or it was my ego getting the better of me. And we always have to face that as a reality. But visions are part of what goes on in prophecy. As to how someone gets a message. just want you to look very briefly at chapter 3 and look at verses 6 onwards. I mean, you can probably see from chapter 3 that we've got poetry and prose. Poetry is often the spoken oracle... The prose is a narrative version, often of the same thing. So it's putting it more in story form rather than a spoken oracle. When you look at verse 6 onwards, what's it about? Israel in verse 6 and if you go to verse 7 Judah and what gender are they presented as being when you go it, she. she and in verse 8 and 9 you've got the idea of Sisters, and in verse 10, sisters. And what are they accused of doing? 
committing adultery or playing the whore or that kind of language. Sorry? Worshipping other gods. Going after other gods is predominantly what's being spoken of, but they use the language of adultery, faithlessness, and they portray the nations and the people very often in feminine language. And some of that is really, really problematic, particularly for women. Um, and the book of Ezekiel is absolutely dreadful in the kind of language that, that, it, that it uses. It is not saying that there was a lot of sexual immorality going on. It really is about staying true to the covenant or not staying true to the covenant. Worshipping the one God, the God of Israel and Judah, or worshipping lots of other gods. The language, I'm not sure that it worked in their age, but it certainly doesn't work in our age. And we have to be so careful about how we talk about going after false gods and faithlessness and find new ways of expressing that. Because the false gods are all over the place. Money, shopping, social media, you you name it. The, the, The false gods are there that people are putting first in their lives rather than God. They're putting their trust in all kinds of things to be the magic solution to the problems. But for goodness sake... Don't start picking up this language of adultery and playing the whore and that kind of thing. Because A, it can start to put the accusation on one gender rather than the other. But it also doesn't wash in our age. But what you often get, and you do get it to an extent in this book, it's more so in the book of Ezekiel, that the northern kingdom of Israel that was overrun by the Assyrians in the 8th century BCE was apostate, went after other gods, all sorts of political alliances, strayed away from the covenant and therefore got its comeuppance and failed. Judah survived longer, the southern kingdom and Jerusalem. So what would Judah have thought about itself? Aren't we good? We're better, aren't we? What do you think the prophet wants to say? Not really, you're not any better, and in fact, most of the time the prophet wants to say you're even worse, because you've not learned the lesson. You've not learned the lesson from seeing what happened to the northern kingdom of Israel. You've misinterpreted it and thought, we're all right, we can do whatever we like. God's on our side, we're the faithful ones, and you've strayed even more from what God wanted. So when some go off into exile, get carted off, what do the people in Jerusalem probably think? Who are the goodies, who are the baddies? Which are the baddies? The ones carted off. Who does the prophet want to say are the baddies? You, because they're learning their lesson, you're still not learning the lesson, and you're getting deeper and deeper and deeper into your bad ways 
and not learning, not listening. And that's the way the messages go. So Israel bad, Judah thinks it's good. Prophet says Israel bad, Judah even worse. Some go into exile, Judah and Jerusalem say exile's bad, Prophet says exile's good, you even worse. The Assyrians were the northern, overwhelmed the northern kingdom. We will touch on that when we get to Isaiah. It's Babylon now who is the, the power that is threatening exile. And certainly it is that Babylon is doing the will of God. And again, we'll pick that one up as we move into the book of Isaiah. We've just been talking about which are good and which are bad. Exiles or those in Jerusalem. Find chapter 24. What's the prophet seeing? Two baskets of figs. Are they both the same? One's good, one's bad. Which are the good figs? The ones who've gone into exile. I've sent to the place of the Chaldeans. I'll set my, I'm in verse 6, I'll set my eyes upon them for good and I will bring them back. And look, I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them. See that motif that we had right at the beginning? But what the prophet was to do is being utilised here again. I'll give them a heart to know that I'm the Lord and they'll be my people and I will be their God. So the good ones are going into exile or have gone into exile and there's a future for that lot. Bad ones are still injured. But an ordinary vision a fix that would be a very common thing to see. Another vision, chapter 18. What's this one? The potter's house and a potter's being made and the vessel's spoiled and he reworks it. And the word of the Lord came to me, can't I do the same with you, house of Israel? Just as the potter has done, just like the clay, remake you. Visions that are interpreted. And again, if you look in verse 7, one moment I may declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I'll pluck up and break down and destroy... And at another moment in verse 9, I may declare that I will build and plant. Same ideas coming around. And verse 11, I'm a potter shaping evil against you. And how does that verse 11 end? I mend your ways. So this is what I'm doing, but if only you would change your ways, it doesn't have to happen. There's an immediacy to it. And it's do you believe what the prophet is saying or do you think that's a false prophet? Always the difficulty and the next verse say it's no use we'll follow our own plans each of us will act according to the stubbornness of our own evil will that's simply say no we we're in a rut we believe in what we're doing we think we've got the political wherewithal to do things We daren't take the risk 
is sort of what's going on in people's minds. Better the devil you know. All these phrases are things that we're familiar with, aren't they? And we know that's human nature. So prophets have visions. Prophets speak words. Jeremiah is being presented to us as a new Moses in many, many ways. Find chapter 13. What's he told to do? Buy a loincloth and take the loincloth and go to the Euphrates and hide it. And then he's told after a long, long while to go and fetch it back again. Now I don't think we're supposed to take this literally to go all the way to the Euphrates because that's dickens of a long way and who's going to see him do it? I think this is probably a little prophetic drama that you put on in the town square, you know, three years later when you're going to fetch it back. But it's dramatic symbolism, dramatic action. So instead of communicating by word, another feature of prophecy is to enact it. Probably the one that you may be familiar with is the prophet Hosea, which according to the book was told to have a wife and have children and to live it out for several years to enact the message in his own life. This is a dramatic action and you get Ezekiel lying on his side for one so many days and then turning over and lying on the other side and I'm do not believe that people counted how many days he'd been on one side or the other. And, but, you know, it's prophetic symbolism to convey an idea, a message from God. And if you go to 27, chapter 27, and I know I'm diving all over the place, but I told you we were going to with Jeremiah. And what's he told to do? In the first couple of verses. To make a yoke and put it on himself. To walk about with a yoke on him. And... Go through to chapter 28, verse 10. And what happens there? Hmm? The yoke is broken by who? Another prophet, Hananiah, breaks the yoke verse 12 sometime after the prophet had broken the yoke from the neck of the prophet Jeremiah Jeremiah is told to go and tell Hananiah a message effectively that he's going to die and what does it say in verse 17? He died. he died. Which was the true prophet, Jeremiah or Hananiah? Jeremiah. Only know it with hindsight. An example of two people utilising the same sort of symbols, the same kinds of words... And how difficult it is to know which was which. Chapter 32. 
and find verses 6 onwards. What's Jeremiah doing here? Very specific, what's he doing? Verse 9 makes it very clear. He's buying a field. And he's buying a field where? Anathoth, which is in the land of Benjamin. Now we've already had some people gone off into exile to Babylon. And what Jeremiah been saying to everybody is Babylon going to capture Jerusalem? Yeah? And that we've all got to go over to Babylon. Yeah? So what's he buying a field for in Anatoth? It's a sign of hope. Long-term hope. So it's not all judgment. Sometimes it's a sign that there will be possibilities in the future. And I'm going to stick my neck out, says Jeremiah, and take ownership of that land in readiness. It may not be me who goes back to it. It may be my descendants. But it's in the family. Another prophetic symbolism. So some of the symbolism is for judgment. Some of the symbolism is for hope. And let's look at chapter 36, just very briefly. And what's Jeremiah told to do? Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken. And then go and read it in the temple. And then he reads it in the palace in the hearing of the king. And what does the king do? Verses 20 onwards. Verse 23 will actually. I, I, I love verse 23. What does it tell us is going on? As a bit's being read, it's cut off and it's thrown where? In the fire and it's being burned. So the king is effectively doing what? Rejecting it. He's rubbishing it. He's not taking heed of it. He's listening to it, but is saying that is nonsense. It's being burned. And verse 27 onwards, what do we then get? Do it again. Get Baruch to write it all out again. God's word can't be dismissed in that simple way. So what are we being shown there? You've got the king doing one thing and God. God has got the power and authority, not the earthly king. God's word can't be silenced. A king cannot scrub it out and get rid of it all. But the interesting thing is that the king rejects the message and there are several places in this book where Jeremiah is thrown in prison or is thrown down a pit or whatever, but what doesn't the king do? doesn't kill the prophet it's as though there's this sense of well it just might be of God I dare not take the life of somebody we'll silence him we'll put him somewhere where he can't do any mischief 
but I'm not going to bring down the wrath of heaven, if you like, for actually killing the prophet. Let's go to 23.18. If you go back to verse 16, don't listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They're deluded. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the word of the Lord. They keep saying to those, it will be well for you. Um, No calamity will come upon you. And verse 18 For who has stood in the counsel of the Lord? Back to that idea of Micaiah, of have they stood there and received the message from God? They keep saying to you, it will all be well. It's exactly the same in chapter 7, and you need to find that, where they keep saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, we've got the temple of the Lord, God's with us. It's as though it's a talisman. While the temple still stands, God is on our side. We don't need to worry. While St Paul still stands, we don't need to worry. Well, perhaps we do. It's not that the building stands, it's what's going on and what God's people are doing that matters. The building's not going to save us. It's God who's going to save us. Now we were in chapter 23. Go to the very end of chapter 22. From verses 24 onwards. Who's it talking about? The king. You've probably got Kaniah, otherwise known as Jehoiakin, with a C-H. C-H-I-N, Jehoiakin. And in verse 28, is despised. Yes? And in verse 30... Record him as childless. None of his offspring shall sit on the throne of David and rule again. He was the last of the line of Davidic kings. That is a prophecy of the downfall of the Davidic monarchy. And effectively, it says it's come to an end. There shall be no other kings of that line on the throne of David. Chapter 23 begins with what? Talking about who? Shepherds. Shepherds is another word for kings, rulers, leaders. And they've all been doing bad things, made the flock get scattered, they've been looking after themselves all the while. But in verse 5, the days are surely coming, projected sometime into the future, what? I will raise up a righteous branch for David. Seems to contradict what we've just said. But what is a branch? An offshoot. It goes off in a different direction. It's connected but it's not continuity it's something that is different 
So this idea of a new start, and this righteous branch is also mentioned in chapter 33. We get virtually identical wording in 33, 14 and 15. And it's going to be for Israel and Judah. So it's a looking forward for all of God's people, not just the ones who go into exile. It's that God is going to do something new. And we're going to stop very shortly for our cup of tea. But in chapter 31 to 33, well, it's 30 onwards to 33, really, you've got passages that are much more hopeful. And 31.31 says, The days are surely coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. When I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt, so who are we making reference to again? Moses. And they broke that. I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God, they shall be my people. That links in with Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, the hero Israel, the Lord your God is one God. So it's not a new covenant. It's a renewal of the covenant because it never comes to an end. God doesn't break covenant, the people do. And God remakes it, renews it, reestablishes it with each generation of people who are able to hear and to respond to what God is talking about. That's enough on Jeremiah. We're going to stop. I've not attempted to give you an overview of what Jeremiah is talking about because basically the message is about do you just keep going on in your own sweet way believing that God's on your side and you don't need to change or are you ready to heed that God might want you to do remarkably different things and to put God first in ways that challenge the authorities of your day? The only thing I've not drawn to your attention that I had hoped to do would be the letter to the exiles, the first lot of exiles who go out, and that's chapter 29, Jeremiah writes to them, saying, settle down, marry. Pray for the city where you are, because in their well-being you will find your own well-being. Go out into that alien place and pray for it and mix with it and integrate with those people and make known the ways of God in that context, and you don't know how long you're going to be there before God brings you back to a place where you feel more at home and comfortable. But trust that God is at work short-term and longer-term, and your duty, my duty, is to be faithful to the ways of God come what may and to challenge those who are putting their trust in other things as the solution to the world's problems be that military might be it the stock market be it economics 
be it any other magic way of resolving the issues. It's stay with God and God's covenant. And what's God's covenant basically about? What are we called to do? Love who? Love God and our neighbour. To love each other and to walk in God's ways, which are ways of righteousness and justice. So the book of Jeremiah is all about prophecy and how difficult it is to know the true prophet from the false prophet. But actually the true prophets are there. But they're not going to be popular. And if we're going to be prophets from God, we're not going to win the popularity stakes, but that doesn't mean to say you give up. You keep going with what we're called to do. Well, we're now going to run in there and get a cup of tea and there's some lovely chocolate biscuits.